what went wrong at Capital One, first-hand advice on early-stage data breach remediation, and the New York DFS cybersecurity regulation and third-party risk. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. If you were wondering when we were going to see another jaw-droppingly massive data breach, this week delivered in spades. Federal prosecutors this week charged a Seattle woman with stealing data from more than 100 million credit applications made with Capital One Financial Corporation. These applications included data pertaining to approximately 140,000 social security numbers, 80,000 bank account numbers on US customers, and roughly 1 million social insurance numbers for Canadian credit card customers. It's early to determine whether this is the tip of the iceberg and what the ramifications will be, but one of the first questions asked is, how did this happen? Here's ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk, to explain. Capital One has become the latest big U.S. corporation to have a severe data breach. The FBI arrested Paige A. Thompson, a Seattle woman who used to work for Amazon's S3. She's accused of using administrator credentials to bypass a firewall, accessing personal data for 106 million U.S. and Canadian residents. The intrusion exposed tens of millions of credit card applications collected between 2005 and this year. The first question after a major data breach usually is, how did the intruder get in? It's a frustrating query because the answer may not come for months, but with the Capital One breach, the answer was surprisingly contained in the criminal complaint against Thompson. She allegedly executed a command that retrieved the security credentials for an administrator account of a web application firewall. From there, she had access to 700 or so folders containing the data, which was copied. But Capital One's breach begs more questions as to how such a well-resourced organization could have been left vulnerable and what defensive technologies might have stopped it. Australian data breach expert Troy Hunt says an intruder shouldn't be able to skip through a firewall and immediately get access to sensitive files. WAFs are great, but they should be an additional layer of, of security and the underlying resources themselves still need to be secure. So for argument's sake, if this was lack of authentication on a resource and they were just relying on the WAF in order mm-hmm. to keep people out, then that is, that is a pretty egregious oversight. Capital One says it does encrypt files and uses tokenization for sensitive data fields. So why did this turn into a data breach? The bank has been circumspect but said, quote, due to the particular circumstances of this incident, the unauthorized access also enabled the decrypting of the data, end quote. There is an idea of how that happened. The administrator account on the firewall may have either had access to the decryption keys or the permission to access the files. How Thompson allegedly gained the credentials for the admin account is somewhat unclear, but she worked for Amazon for more than a year between 2015 and 2016. That's led to thoughts that Capital One may have failed to change admin credentials on the firewall. There are other ways that Capital One might have been able to gain visibility earlier that it was under attack. Brian Vecchi is field CTO for the security vendor Veronis. He tells me that proper monitoring of accounts would have alerted if someone was trying to copy or sync large amounts of data. And Hunt says there's another broader question. Why was Capital One storing tens of millions of credit card applications from as long as 14 years ago? Today's best practice, and one that's codified in Europe's general data protection regulation, is to discard data when it's no longer needed. 
But Hunt says organizations still think they need to hold on to it for business purposes. Organizations tend to look at data as an asset and they don't ever look at it as a liability. That will now come at a dear cost for Capital One. It estimates the near-term cost of the breach will range between $100 to $150 million. Also, class action lawsuits are already popping up, and New York State's Attorney General has announced an investigation. The legal ramifications and costs will likely go on for years. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. While staying on the subject of the Capital One data breach, this week I interviewed Art Coviello. Art is currently a partner at Rally Ventures, but until 2015, he was the chair of RSA Security and led the company through the remediation and recovery process after the 2011 data breach. As someone with first-hand experience of dealing with the immediate aftermath of a data breach, I asked him, what should Capital One be doing? Here's Art's response. So uh, before I get into the answer to that question, I I just want to remind all your listeners that that Capital One is the victim here, and and having been a victim, I'd like to point that out first and foremost. But what they need to do is be as forthcoming as they possibly can about what exactly happened and what they're going to do to remediate the situation for their customers and for their internal systems to give people confidence that something like that won't happen again. But I think they've already started to do that. I've read the press accounts and I, I think they're so far they've, they've handled it reasonably well. What do the constituents need to hear in terms of I'd say the customers, but also obviously uh, the shareholders here and and the industry overall. Well, again, this is like not the first time this has happened to shareholders. It might be the first time it's happened to the the particular consumers involved. Unfortunately, the whole idea of, well, we'll do credit monitoring is starting to sound like round up the usual suspect. Unfortunately, there isn't much more that can be done. The the horse is out of the barn to the extent the information is out there. But again, to be as forthcoming um, to individuals who have been compromised and to let them know uh, that they have been compromised uh, and what, if anything, can be done from a remediation standpoint. And again, the best thing these days, I guess, is credit monitoring. But but the damage is, is, is somewhat done, and now they just need to be watchful about about what will happen. But the, the press accounts I've read suggest that uh, that this perhaps is, is not as bad as it could be, but we'll have to see what else comes out. One other component of the Capital One data breach, which is likely to see further scrutiny, is the role of their relationship with Amazon, the third-party cloud vendor that was hosting their data, and the employer of the hacker. While it appears the fault was with Capital One for a misconfigured firewall, the incident does draw attention to third-party risk. On August 13th and 14th, ISMG is hosting a two-day cybersecurity summit in New York, and one of the guest speakers is attorney Ted Augustinus, a partner at Locklord LLP and an expert on the New York Department of Financial Services cybersecurity regulation. He'll be discussing one specific component of the regulation, Section 500.11, which pertains to third-party service provider security policy. This went into effect on March 1st of this year. I asked Ted 
Have these regulations changed the way organisations currently approach vendor risk management? Here's his response. I think so. Um, and, and I'm talking about, you know, a very broad range of companies from very, very sophisticated, best in the world kinds of enterprises in terms of their risk assessment and risk management in procurement and, and other functions to very unsophisticated companies that really had to start wrestling with this for the first time. For all of them, this has given them a different way to varying degrees of looking at their outside relationships. So where even companies that were really good at this, this meaning cybersecurity, they had to start doing some things, documenting things in a way, developing policies that they just hadn't had to do before. And so this, as I said, has been a a heavy lift for many companies to figure out who's in scope and what's required. And because this is all sort of driven by the risk assessment, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, and companies have really tried to rationalize. Some companies have thousands and thousands and thousands of these relationships. Many of those relationships are not conducive to uh, template contracts, and so there's really a lot of work to be done to think about the risk, uh, what's appropriate to address the risk, uh, what needs to be in contracts, how you handle that process of getting uh, contracts amended and through, um, and then you know, sort of continuing to, to monitor and assess the risk that these relationships present. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.